Just a quick housekeeping uh, bulletin, I guess, notice. This is our last week with John and Zev, and I, I do want to appreciate, say personally how much I appreciate them being here, giving of their times and themselves, and um, I'm sure you all feel the same. Uh, again, if you'd like to give them a thank you offering, I'm willing to take that. Some people have already contributed, and I thank you for that. Next week starts a four-week series with Dr. Ham. Dr. Ham is no stranger to this class. He's taught before. He will stand in front of you with his Bible and, and, and uh, bring Genesis alive. And I've elected to add to that um, Genesis as it was written. Well, we will not entertain evolution. We will not entertain thoughts that do not pertain to the text as written. That, that is the way he teaches. And, and uh, unlike John Unlike Zev, me, right. <laughs> who opened it up to the world of possibilities... Dr. Ham will drill into the text, and he will give you interpretation uh, that truly is amazing. With that, let's open in prayer. Father God, I come with you to praise you with my friends who come here today to, to learn more about you. I would say that I was spoken to this morning as I walked across the hospital parking lot and the dry leaves were blowing and crackling under my feet and the scripture came to mind that you are the vine and we are the branches. And I saw, felt how weak I was, like those leaves that were once strong and could stand the wind now were being blown about, tossed about, and crumbled under my feet. And as I thought that way, you spoke again and said, I am. They made me think of my friends because you are truth, you are light, you are. And so often we just want your blessing to have you put on us when really we should be seeking to understand I am, you are in us. All we'll ever need. You are the vine and we are the branches. Bless our teachers today, bless all of us with your Holy Spirit, that we may share in your good word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan. Good morning, everybody. And uh, here we are for our final synthesis session, and as promised, what we're going to do today is open up the class to any questions that you have um, about anything that we've studied, uh, and knowing me, as was just stated, anything that we haven't studied. <laughs> Uh, so our journey with Peter into Jesus uh, is ending today, and here is a final assignment uh, for you, should you choose to embrace it. Uh, if you Google Misty Edwards, I knew what I was getting into. Uh, you will find, it'll come up, and it'll be on uh, YouTube. And this song is so beautiful that even aesthetically sensitive Presbyterians will like it. It's not rock. And what I would like you to do is get someplace quiet and listen to this song and think about Peter and what you learned about Peter and what you learned about yourself. And I promise you, you will have a beautiful Christological experience. I promise that. I already prayed for you.
So have fun doing it. Okay, so what we're going to do today is uh, Zeb and I are going to just start off by sharing a little bit about what meant the most to us. Take uh, two or three minutes or five. What did you have? Five? You have seven? Whatever. Okay. Try, try, let's try to be concise because we want to have as many questions as possible. And uh, you have a handout that I prepared for you. Um, I had a lot of uh, interesting learning experiences during this whole course. And what I've done is put in very short uh, order here some of the high points, objective high points from Peter's life that we studied and the passages. Should you care to go back and review them, you can do it now. All of the chief, pa chief passages are listed. And then over on the right-hand side is an opportunity for you to maybe jot down some personal epiphanies that you may have had. Uh, and boy, did I have some this, this course. And I could, I, it, originally, I was going to you know, share a lot of them, but I'm, I'm only going to tell you about one. And that's the one, two, three, fourth one down, Peter's sifting and restoration. Remember when we studied that? And uh, the master said to Peter on the, on the night that he was arrested that Satan has in demanded, he has asked, he has demanded and asked to sift you like wheat. But the master said, I have prayed for you, and when your faith has been restored, you will return and strengthen your brothers. And it hit me like just an epiphany that we all fail. And I looked at some of the failures of my life in the light of what he was saying to Peter. And I thought, if it wasn't for the faith that Jesus planted within us, we would all fall away. And that's what the master meant when he said, when he said, I've prayed for you that your faith doesn't fail. Well, where did Peter get his faith in the first place? The master put it into him, right? And slowly brought him to the place where that faith that Jesus was offering to him was embraced by Peter. So it, when, when Jesus is saying that to him, he's not saying it was your faith generated out of your own flesh that is going to return that I prayed for. He's saying the faith that I put inside of you, that I created, is not going to fail even though what? you will fail. And boy, that humbled me, helped me, made me lay on my face before God and my spirit because I thought that's, that's really some kind of a God that knows you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. And you look over the failures of your life and what's his message to you? I believe in you. You may have failed me, <laughs> but I'm not going to fail you because the faith I put inside of you, I'm gonna pray for, and it will come back alive, and you will return. And that helped me a lot. I, I hope that helps you guys too. That was one of the biggest things that I learned. Zev, why don't you come and share a few things that you learned, and then you will be ready to ask any questions that you want. Satan to sit Peter and Peter's prayer and 
that passage from Luke, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And, uh, oh, I forgot to turn it on. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned last week, I've been always regarded Paul as really my mentor, my model, but I've been channeling my inner Peter. Um, Satan's demand was to sift Peter, you know, sifting wheat, you know, in terms of winnowing it, getting rid of the chaff, uh, letting that blow away and leaving the grain behind but it's not always a pleasant process from the wheat's point of view. And Jesus' prayer that his faith, which as John mentioned, was given by God, would not fail. Now the implication of the prayer of when he said he will return, that is he will repent, is that Simon is going to fail. And what I really, noted for me in that passage is he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon. And he says it twice. Again, that Hebraic doubling. Simon, Simon. In other words, yeah, Simon is going to fail. But Peter will not. Because of the faith that God has given him, which will enable him to repent. Now the failure comes out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because what Peter was to do is to watch and stay on, that is to stay on the alert for Satan's assault. Because it was the hour of darkness. And to pray for God's power to keep him safe from the evil one. The reason why it would be necessary for Peter to watch and pray is given in one another of Jesus' statements, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what really came to me is the whole process is that his failure to watch and pray is what led to the denials. It's what led to the denials. The denials were not the moment really of failure. That was the fruit of the failure. But it was the failure to watch and pray. And so what I really learned from that, and what I think Peter learned, is in, found in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now there's a man who's learned from his experience. 
there's a man who's learned from experience. And I had my own Gethsemane moment in 2004, in spite of my whole dramatic conversion experience and everything, I renounced holy orders and left the Episcopal Church to re-explore my Jewish heritage and to re-immerse myself in it. And my Christian faith and the ardor of my original conversion to it had really been sapped by the stress and the burnout of a challenging ministry, ordained ministry. You see, I entered the ordination process so shortly after my conversion that my original calling to become a Christian and my calling to become a priest had become conflated in my mind. Also, and the echoes of the dreams that I had had that led me to the baptismal fond had grown very dim. I believed at the time that I was being led to come home and that home was a Jewish community. So I became an active member of Temple Israel in Canton. What I now see beyond a shadow of a doubt, which I can only see in retrospect, is that the reason for my stress and burnout was that I was relying on my own natural strength and abilities to do my ministry. In other words, I was relying on the flesh rather than the spirit. I had made that mistake once I'd been ordained and made it through the ordination process and made it into the parish of an effect saying to God, okay, I can handle this. I'll take it from here. Without going into too much detail, I've experienced a complete renewal of my Christian faith, thanks be to God. Now, what I discovered in that process is that there's a huge difference between departing and turning away from a faith, especially one so long and deeply held, and merely repressing it. Especially one so long and deeply held. I thought I had done the former. I came to discern that I had only done the latter. And what I now realize is that thanks be to God, Jesus had been praying for me that my faith not fail, just as he had for Simon Peter. And it was that prayer of Jesus that led the Spirit to call me home to himself, and it is that same prayer even now that keeps my faith alive in the Spirit. Most importantly, I came to realize I deeply need a God with a human face and a human heart. I need a God who has so identified and with and entered into the human experience with all its pain and suffering and brokenness. I could only find that in Jesus Christ who clothed himself in my flesh so that I might be clothed in his righteousness and be filled with his spirit. And I'd like to close with a wonderful statement. This was from a letter that the Puritan divine Philip Henry wrote to his son. See your need of Christ more and more and live upon him. No life like it, so sweet, so safe. My savior is mine in all things. 
We cannot be discharged from the guilt of any sin we do without his merit to satisfy. We cannot move in the performance of any good required without his spirit and grace to assist and enable for it. And when we have done all, that all is nothing without his mediation and intercession to make it acceptable. So that every day in everything he is all in all. That was in Philip, a letter of Philip Henry to his son, the great Bible commentator, Matthew Henry. And that's great advice for all of us. All right, thank you, Zev. You can just, just hang up, uh, up here because you're going to be answering questions. Who's got some? <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. Um, did he receive a faith that was unique to him? Uh, do each, well, in a sense, each of us does. Okay, I remember one of the more, the great things that uh, I heard where Terry shared the tapes of when Jim Forbes, who was, uh, he's now the pastor, I think, of Riverside Church in New York, probably as consistently, every time they've done a list of the 10 top preachers in the United States, he's been on that list. He's remarkable. And he came to Yale Divinity School to give the Lyman Beecher lectures in preaching. And his subject was the Holy Spirit in preaching. And one of the things that he talked about that he felt had been a dimension of the work of the Holy Spirit that had not been really as deeply mined is the idea of the anointing of the Spirit. And he talked about the anointing of Jesus with the Spirit as having a number of dimensions. And I love the turn that he took with this because he said, Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, that's by definition kind of non-repeatable. That's unique. But the very uniqueness of Jesus' relationship to the Spirit and to the Father itself is a kind of paradigm because each and every one of us has a unique relationship to God in Christ by the Spirit. No two of us are alike. No two of us are alike. Your relationship to God cannot be the same as mine because you are not me and I am not you. So in a very real sense, yes, every one of us has a faith that is unique because that faith is the bond of the relationship, the glue that holds us in from our perspective. On the other hand, there is a sense in which our faith is identical across the boards, and that is in its source and perfection. In the letter to the Hebrews, Jesus says, 
Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He creates it in us. He maintains it in us by his spirit. And it is he himself who is the perfection of it. And he is also our pattern of faith. And that doesn't change from one person to another. So in excellent rabbinic fashion, I'm going to say that the answer to your question is yes and no. (laughs) Yes, sir, go ahead. How does your Hebrew tradition growth enrich your Christian beliefs? I've noticed throughout listening to your lectures, I've been very impressed you're going back into Old Testament and Old Testament literature and examples and tying it into your Christian faith, unlike anything I've ever heard from any other minister, preacher, Sunday school teacher. Okay. I hope I made that clear. Well, one of the things I think I may have mentioned that uh, at one point when I was at Temple Israel, a book came out that was published in memory of Daniel Pearl called I Am Jewish. Because Daniel Pearl, who was the journalist who was kidnapped and executed by extremists in Pakistan, those were his last words, is I am Jewish. And as I think I mentioned, Rabbi Spitzer in one of his addresses, to, you know, one of his sermons at uh, Temple Israel, gave a couple of examples from that book of different people explaining what being Jewish meant to them and encouraged us to do our own. And what almost immediately came to me is, I have a goodly heritage. I have a goodly heritage. And that heritage, it would be an awful waste not to make use of it. Number one, to enrich my faith, certainly. But there's something also that really does have to be said for that. My roots are Jewish, yes. But the last time I looked, most trees don't grow in the direction of their roots. They grow up from them. So that's where my roots are but it's not where my wings are. Okay, and that's why I, and one of the things that I shared with John, this has been some of the, you know, when he talked about the Emmaus experience with people, since my reconversion to Christianity, and especially since I've been doing a lot of this teaching, what has really become clear to me is that this time, instead of the professionally trained, seminary trained, historical critical, scholarly approach to scripture that was drilled into me, I am doing my utmost as I read those same Hebrew scriptures to have my Emmaus experience and to have the master explain what they mean. Okay? And you know, certainly those are excellent, you know, what I, my interpretation of those scriptures would not be the same as Rabbi Spitzer's. <laughs> By a long shot. But I can't do anything else. I can't do anything else because I know whom I have believed 
And I believe he is truth. He is the truth. You see, in Christianity, it, this is one of the things, it's, it's sort of a stereotype, but in some ways it's true that Judaism has been called a what religion and Christianity a who religion. In other words, the question, what is truth, immediately a Jew would say, it's the Torah. It's the Torah. But a Christian really should say, that's the wrong question. The question is not what is the truth, but who is the truth? And the truth is Jesus himself. Jack's got a question. I have, my question grows out of the last one. Uh, in our journey through Hebrews, and in these sessions, we've been blessed to hear a view that I think many of us have never really focused on, for which I, I know we're all grateful. My question is, the, the, the lessons you've given us are so persuasive, why have the Jews not accepted the truth and the who of the Old Testament. I got to get to the golf course. <laughs> <laughs> he just wants to get out of the line of fire. <laughs> All right. This is a tough one. The first thing that I think I need to tell you is this. What happened on the road to Emmaus was not that Jesus was going through and showing how in the Hebrew scriptures, these things predicted Jesus. But how their experience of the crucified and risen Jesus reinterprets the Hebrew scriptures, showing their typification of what was fulfilled in Jesus. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yes. In other words, what is your interpretive key in looking at the Bible? Okay. When a Jew sits down and reads the Bible, his interpretive key is the rabbinic tradition. When a Christian sits down and reads the Bible, his or her interpretive key is Jesus himself. The, as it's sometimes called, the Christ event. Now, what you have to realize is, and, and especially, you know, this is the kind of thing, remember one of those key points in Jesus, I mean in Peter's life, is that whole thing where he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, you know, in Matthew's version it says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And boy, his heart must have been glowing. Man, have I got it right for once. <laughs> and then immediately when Jesus predicts that he's going to get crucified, what does Peter do? He takes him inside and says, Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, you just don't understand. That's never going to happen to you. You're the Messiah. You've got to win. And so then Jesus turns and says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking in human terms. In other words, and here is an important point to keep in mind. 
Has Jesus fulfilled the messianic expectations that Jews have when they use the term Messiah? And the answer is not yet. Not, no, not quite, not yet. Where you will find Jews and Christians coming together is when they think about what is the final end of all human, of all the history of creation. It is in the universal messianic reign of God, a reign of justice and peace and love. And, you know, in that respect, we also are looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. It's just that we have, in his breaking into the midst of human history through his life, death, and, 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 and resurrection, we've got the appetizers. Okay? The vorspeise. The, the, the main course is yet to come. And uh, I'll just add, uh, your question spans 2,000 years. There's a whole section, Romans 9 through 11, mm -hmm. which is a detailed answer of Paul to the Jack Milligans of the first century. Yes. You've you got to think about it from a Gentile point of view, which I will exemplify. He can be Paul. He comes into my hometown of uh, what? Galatia somewhere. He's a big Bible scholar, Paul. And he tells me all this stuff from a book I've never read, don't even have access to. But the Holy Spirit's working through the message as God promises, and I have a Christ experience, and I become, as Peter says in Peter, 1 Peter 1, a born again into a living hope. Okay, so now I have Jesus living inside of me, and I have an apostle teaching me, and we still don't have any text to really look at, so I get some basic concepts. Well then, you know, I cruised along, I'm going along on my joyful walk with the Lord, and I start realizing and experiencing over and over and over again that the Jews, generally speaking, not totally, because it was a Jew that led me to Jesus, but most of the Jews are against this. In fact, they're following Paul around, uh, fighting against the spread of Jesus because they think it's a false teaching. Here I am, a little goy, and what do I know? So, I mean, the question is what? If, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, how can I believe in him? And the Jewish people, for the most part, don't. It doesn't make sense. And that's why Paul calls it a mystery. And this term is used 12 times in the New Testament. Mysteries. There's many of them. And if you really want an authoritative scholarly look at them, send me an email. April, you got to laugh harder. You guys aren't laughing today. No, I actually have a study on all of the mysteries of the New Testament. Okay. Send me an email, and I'll send it to you. This is just one of them. Okay. And it's something, as I just, let me finish here. It, it's something that Zev was talking about. Paul, in effect, says that this is something that has to be revealed to a person, even as it is, uh, was it done to Peter? F the Father revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't arrive at that conclusion through a torture, torturous examination of texts. 
It was a supernatural illumination. And that's what Paul is teaching here, that uh, Israel is in a partial state of hardness, and does anyone know why? What's the benefit of it? What's the point? Yes! This is the age of the Gentiles! So now, God's got this big master plan. He worked with the Jews for a long time, and then he brought forth the Messiah, and now he's giving the Messiah to the world while the Jews ponder what they're going to do. And the good news is, what, Zev? At the end, he says, All of Israel will be saved. So there's going to be of God's Jewish people, and he's like one little foretaste, the remnant that returns... And there will be a big remnant that returns. Uh, so it's an exciting time to be alive and understand this. It's a great question. Read Romans 9 through 11, and it will really help you a lot. So go ahead. Yeah. The other thing that does have to be said is, why don't Jews today accept this understanding of Hebrew Scripture or that Jesus is the Messiah? Just look at 2,000 years of Christian treatment of the Jews, and you'll know why. You'll know why. I mean, such a Messiah we don't need. More Jews have been killed in the name of Jesus than for any other cause. Yeah. And if you really want to get uh, sticky here, I mean, Rabbi Spitzer's my good friend. I mean, I love him. I give my life for him. But boy, we have had some conversations on this topic. And uh, about 15 years ago, he gave me a book written by James Carroll called The Sword of Constantine. And in that book, it's a persuasive documentation that anybody that says in Europe that they didn't know that the Jews were being massacred is not telling the truth. Everybody knew. And most people participated. And the sad thing, the frightening thing, the horrifying thing is that the, most of the people that participated, guess what? They confessed Jesus. that they were Christians. 99% of the people in Poland are Christians. All those people in Lithuania, in the Ukraine, that took such delight. They didn't, the Nazis didn't even have to urge them on. They just let them, they just turned them loose and they went crazy on the Jews. What, are, what religion were they? Uh, Christians, confessing Christians. Now you might say, like I did to Rabbi Spitzer, but they really weren't Christians. Well, and then, I, would have, I would say, yes, they were, but uh, they were, unfortunately, they were being very bad Christians. Okay, so however you're going to work it out theologically. Mm -hmm. They were Christians at one time and they left the faith. They were really bad Christians. Or they weren't Christians at all. What the Jews knew was those people that they saw slaughtering Jews in the streets on Saturday night would do what on Sunday morning? Go to church. So if, if the worst case scenario ever comes and Islam invades this country and starts doing to us what the European Christendom did to Jews, what do you think that American Christians are going to say about Islam? Would you listen to a presentation? Yeah. And, and the, the Jewish people over at the synagogue taught me this. When they hear the term Christian just because of everything that's happened, guess what comes up in their mind? The Holocaust. And, yes. who, and who did it? And that's a pretty formidable barrier to break through, even, through, even for a brilliant speaker like me. <laughs> but you, they are not laughing or at one joke today. This is pathetic. 
They laugh at your Jewish stuff, but not me. I'm kidding. Some this people know huge... how to tell them. <laughs> Granted. Now, okay. Um, yeah, that's that's the big thing. I mean, that is really the big thing. Yes, Paul said a hardening or a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. What the church needs to recognize is that since Paul wrote that, the church has been busy in doing its own job of hardening right. Jewish resistance to the gospel. And that's something of which we need to repent. We need to repent Although I will say I found that passage rather useful. I remember when I first took up the pulpit at uh, St. Luke's Church in Welch, West Virginia, heart of the southern coal fields, uh, one of the members of another congregation, a Presbyterian congregation, just to uh, um, set the record straight, Linnell A.G. came up to me and says, I think it's wonderful that you're here and you can evangelize all the Jews in McDowell County. Well, there were three of them. <laughs> I had a somewhat broader mission field, and I said, well, you know, Linnell, Paul said, a hardening has come upon a part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. So when the last Gentile in McDowell County has been converted and churched, then come and talk to me about the three Jews who live here. <laughs> okay, who's got other questions? Don't be shy. The Jewish race has been downtrodden from Rome days up to Hitler. I don't know why have they always been, seems uh. like. Okay. <clears throat> you can wax on for a while if you want, and I'll. <laughs> He's going to give you the answers up on the board. No. Um, and it predates Rome. It predates Rome. Okay. And I think you really, in truth, have to look at this going very deeply. Because one of the things that Paul says also in that same section of Romans 9 through 11 is that the calling and election of God are irreversible. And that the Jews remain beloved of God for the sake of the fathers, the patriarchs. And this is a huge part also in terms of Judaism. You have what is called the term suhut avot, the merits or the, you know, the blessing of the patriarchs. What really, and I guess the closest thing that I can come to an explanation of this was I was rereading some things about history of the Holocaust. This was back after I had returned to Judaism back, you know, few years ago. And as I was reading through this, I suddenly realized, using a term from Jewish mysticism, this is the sitra achra. This is the other side. This is embodied evil. <coughs> and I suddenly realized what I really have to come to terms with is that whether we like it or not, 
Jews represent the Sitra di Kedusha, the side of holiness. <coughs> because Paul says something there, I can, I can test for them, they have a zeal for God. It's just somewhat misinformed. Okay? In other words, they still represent God in the world. Now, who does Satan hate more than anyone else? He hates God, and he hates everything that is of God. And so Satan is going to attack that, and attack that, and attack that. The big problem with Christian persecution of the Jews is that Christians allowed the church to be infiltrated by that satanic attack on the people of God and to be used for it. Now, uh, here's my little addition. If you study carefully Re Revelation 12, it answers the question because just like Jack Milligan's question was born in the first century about Gentiles asking, well, how, how come these guys don't believe and we do? When the persecution began from the Roman Empire on Jews and Gentile Christians, the question came up, now, whoa, 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 what, what, what? I thought this was supposed to be, you know, walking in the sunshine of Galilee, the Messianic era. These people are literally killing us because we believe in Jesus. And so it became an existential crisis in the, in the first century church. Now, we've not gone through that in this country. But when people are killing you, literally, hauling you off to jail, persecuting you, because of what you believe, then all kinds of questions come up. And the question that came up with what the first Christians was, why, 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 why? So John, in apocalyptic literature, gives them an answer. Go study it. There's a woman dressed with the uh, moon and the stars, which is a clear allusion to Genesis 37. He's writing it in code language because he doesn't want the Romans to figure out what he's saying. Genesis 37 tells us that Israel, as a nation, is the one that brought forth the child that the woman is giving birth to in the vision. And that child, the vision says, is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's an allusion to Psalm 2. It's a messianic reference. Psalm 2 is talking about the Messiah's realm. So the woman, Israel, gave birth to who? Yes, the child, the Messiah, who's destined to reign. And so when the, the dragon, who, that's easy to figure out, <laughs> saw that the child had been born, it said it went to devour the child as soon as it was born. What's that an allusion to? The uh, warm. What happened when Jesus was born? What did Herod try to do? He wasn't even out of the crib yet. And they tried to kill him. So then it, the text says the child was taken up to heaven. So, that the, so then the dragon, understandably, because it can't get at the Messiah, decides in the last text of the chapter, if you read it today, this is a horrible text, but it's not as bad as the Browns are going to get it today. So <laughs> go ahead and read it instead. But the last passage in the, in the text says... 
And the dragon went off in a rage to wage war against the woman and the rest of her offspring. The rest of her offspring, who would that be? That's you. Because once you really get into this, you understand Israel didn't just bring forth the Messiah. Israel as a nation brought forth who? Us. So like when I look at him, I mean, it's, yeah, and there's no Jew and Gentile. I understand. He gets it too. But still there's that little tingly thing that I'm like, wow, these are the very people that God used to bring forth this whole thing, to bring forth the Messiah. If it wasn't for them, there'd be no Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus, I'd be, uh, I can't say it in church. I would be in big trouble. So in a sense then, the You'd whole still new, be a hippie. I'd still, well, yes. I would still be a hippie. Um, but what's the point? Satan is gonna wage war against anybody, Jew, or one of these little goyims that decides to get all uppity and become a follower of another Jew, Jesus. Who do you think you are? You're not going to do that. I'll lay waste to your soul. That's Satan's attitude. So why the Jews? It's not just the Jews. Okay. It's you. Uh, let me also Roger bring his. it back to Peter. I just wanted to bring it back to 1 Peter 4 beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, what Peter is telling us here is that persecution is the normal state of a Christian. <clears throat> persecution is the normal state of a Christian. The church has always thrived under persecution and withered when it becomes normal. All right, Roger. I have a, a question concerning the, it seems to me we're asking for Jews to swallow a pill too big to swallow when they look at the anti-Semitism through the years uh, promoted by the Christian church. And it seems like uh, you're asking them to distinguish between bad Christians and good Christians. And I think most of them will come to the judgment that the bad Christians far exceeds the good Christians. And if this is what this faith uh, amounts to, uh, in, in comes to, their apologetic makes good sense not to accept Christianity. Well, you, you I wish I could say I disagree with you. I wish I could say I disagree with you. So right. what's the answer to that? Let's see what the judge has to throw in here. to the sermon, the emphasis is on what was in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, and that is we're commanded to love. Yes. And it seems to me focusing on the commonality and the commandment to love, which is with both religions, would be in large part the solution to this. But we 
because you can call it Satan or whatever, it is easier to espouse those words to, than to live them. But to me, that is the beginning and the end. I think you're right. But as you're also right to point out, Judge, is as has sometimes been said, the longest distance in the world is that foot and a half between your head and your heart. Now, uh, uh, Dr. Barrett has brought up a huge question. Again, I'm going to refer you to uh, Romans 9 through 11. And that is why, Dr. Barrett, um, we have to be in the 21st century, I think, totally cognizant of these facts and be extremely Holy Spirit-led in terms of how we relate to our Jewish friends. It is an enormous uh, existential burden and weight they carry. And uh, it, ha it has to be, it's so delicate, it has to be of God. It has to be done of God if it's going to be done. Yes, sir. Could we have another session when this is all done and ask how we confront the issue of Islam in the current time? There's the man right there. I haven't have spoken time yet. Maybe, maybe John and Zev and I can sit down. We'll, we'll work on something. Let's get a couple more because we're, what time is it right now? 10 7, right? That clock okay. has not been yes, moving. Yes, I know that clock. <laughs> yes. Zev, this one's directed to you. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Can anybody <laughs> ask a question of John? Well, they don't want to hear about, about 55 years ago when I was in college, I had the privilege of a, a, participating in a lunch, luncheon group discussion with the late Selwyn Russlander, who was the rabbi of Temple Israel in Dayton at that time. And in that discussion, two comments of his have stuck with me for years. One was, as a rabbi of a reformed Jewish synagogue, he had no problem with Jesus as a great teacher. And he talked in terms of something you raised a few minutes ago, and that was a messianic ear. His interpretation was he really was not <coughs> expecting a messiah as such, but rather a messianic era. Now, two th something else in some recent reading, and maybe you can help me out with this, is was that the Jewish people were looking for a political messiah, but Jesus was a spiritual messiah, and are we... Is that still true, or has, or has Judaism, or at least Reformed Judaism, moved? Okay. You, you talked a little while ago about All right. the Messianic era, and I'm trying to, the distinction between the Jewish viewpoint and the Christian viewpoint, if there is. Uh, okay, well, what you got to realize, again, when you talk about the Jewish viewpoint, that's like asking about what is the Christian viewpoint about some controversial subject. Okay, um, get two Jews together, you'll have three opinions. <laughs> okay, so that's first of all to understand that. But yes, in Reform Judaism in particular, there is not really an expectation of a coming of a personal Messiah. But instead, the idea is 
there will be a messianic era, which as I said, is that universal reign of justice, peace, love, you know, plenty for all, etc. And that is the goal of human history. Now, also there's a difference in terms of how we get there. And the key element here, at least even especially in Reformed Judaism lately, is you will hear them talk a great deal about tikkun olam, mending the world. Mending the world. The understanding is our world is broken, so what's our job? (coughs) Fix it. Fix it. And so, in some ways, it's a very practical And then the theology. Messianic era will come. And then the Messianic era will come. So, they're come. not looking for a person. They're looking for a time, okay. a period. Now, and again, between the political and the spiritual, quote-unquote, um, that, again, depends on what part of the Jewish community you're talking to. So, uh, if you were to go to, say, an Orthodox rabbi, they are definitely looking for the coming of a personal Messiah who will be the direct lineal descendant of David and who will restore the Davidic kingship in Jerusalem and who will also, in effect, rule over the entire world. Now, where I would say that, you know, we Christians, when we have, we, we, we have to be careful, let's not share this with our Jewish brothers and sisters. But what I would have to say as a person with a Jewish background who is a Christian is that when the Messiah comes, are my Jewish brothers and sisters in for a surprise? But it'll be a good one. But it'll be a good one. Okay, um, we really enjoyed studying with you. It's time to go to church, I guess. And uh, God bless you, and we'll come back when we get invited. <laughs> All right.